about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Riverside, and I will be your host for this web series. The purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Now, every career has its highest prize, and the highest prize for a scientist is the Nobel Prize. It is the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of human biology and ability to treat diseases. Today, we will be examining the 2005 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to Barry J. Marshall and J. Robin Warren. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute chose to give Marshall and Warren the prize, quote, for their discovery of the bacterium Helicobacter pylori and its role in gastritis and peptic ulcer disease, unquote. Today we'll be first going over the symptoms associated with gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. Then we'll talk about how Marshall and Warren followed Koch's postulates to prove Helicobacter pylori causes gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. And finally, we'll be talking about where we are now in the treatment of peptic ulcers. But first, a little bit of background on our two notable Nobels. Barry Marshall was born in 1951 in Western Australia, the eldest of four children. He was originally interested in electrical engineering as an undergrad at Newman College, but switched to medicine after realizing calculus was not for him. Incidentally, calculus is not for me either, but more power to you if you're an engineer listening to this podcast. <laughs> Marshall went to University of Western Australia for medical school, then did residency in internal medicine at the Queen Elizabeth II Medical Center. In 1979, he moved with his wife and family to the Royal Perth Hospital in Australia. It was there in 1981 that he met Robin Warren, with whom he would eventually share the Nobel Prize. Robin Warren was born in 1937 in South Australia. As a boy, Warren was already interested in going to medical school and becoming a doctor. However, at the age of 16, he was diagnosed with epilepsy, which he confesses made life difficult. He was unable to obtain a driver's license, as most teenagers do, because of his condition, and his prospects of going to college and medical school seemed at first doubtful. But he was able to pull it off, gaining entry to the medical school of Adelaide University in 1955. After graduating, he took several positions as a clinical pathologist before accepting a pathologist position at the Royal Perth Hospital in 1968. It was here that he would eventually meet Marshall, and the two of them would do the work that would help so many people suffering from peptic ulcers. So what is gastritis and what are peptic ulcers, the two medical conditions Warren and Marshall said were caused by infection with Helicobacter pylori? Gastritis is inflammation of the stomach. The word gastritis is formed from the Latin word gaster and the Greek suffix itis. Itis is a suffix that in medical lingo means inflammation. This means some part of the body looks red, swollen, and is tender, 
as a result of some kind of immune response. You find itis at the end of many different medical conditions, so it's a good term to know. Here's some examples you may have heard before. Arthritis, which is inflammation of the joints. Colitis, which is inflammation of the colon. Meningitis, which is inflammation of the meninges in your brain. Endocarditis, inflammation of the endocardium in your heart. Gastritis, which we just said is inflammation of the stomach. And I'm currently suffering from senioritis, which is the inflamed desire to graduate. Maybe some of you can relate. <laughs> Gaster is the Latin word for stomach, which helps us form this word gastritis. And gaster also forms the root of many medical words. For instance, you all have a gastrointestinal tract or GI tract, which we normally just call the gut, but in anatomy means your stomach and your intestines. You also may have heard about gastroenterologists, doctors who specialize in managing conditions related to the stomach and intestines. So gastroenterologists are typically the people who see patients suffering from gastritis and also peptic ulcers. Peptic ulcers are defects in the mucous membrane of the stomach. They can be thought of as punched out holes in your stomach, and as you can imagine, that can be quite painful. These ulcers occur when the outer layer of cells in the stomach gets eroded away, exposing the underlying layer of cells. If left untreated, the hole can expand and go all the way through the stomach. In some cases, the erosion reaches the arteries that bring blood to the stomach cells. And if those arteries burst, the person can begin bleeding into their stomach. This can potentially be life-threatening. Too much bleeding results in the person not getting enough oxygen delivered to the other organs in their body, and those other organs can begin to fail, sending the person into shock. In the 1980s, global deaths from peptic ulcer disease each year were as high as 350,000, and millions of others lived with the chronic pain of the ulcers. But people were in the dark about what was causing them. The main idea at the time was that stress was causing excess acid to build up in the stomach, which was causing the ulcers. Some ulcer patients were actually given antidepressants to try and cure their ulcers. Nowadays, we realize it wasn't these people's depression causing the ulcers, it was the ulcers causing the depression. It's a very painful disease, and that made people stressed and depressed. Surgery was another option people tried to treat peptic ulcers. Removing part of the stomach was thought to lead to less acid production, and so in theory could keep the ulcers under control. The problem with that was that people who had part of their stomach removed had a hard time digesting their food, and so they could become malnourished. It was against this backdrop that Marshall and Warren proposed their explanation for peptic ulcers, namely Helicobacter pylori infection. Warren was the first to raise the idea. In 1979 at the Royal Perth Hospital in Australia, Warren first noticed something that looked like bacteria in tissue from a gastric biopsy. Excited, he went to his colleagues at the hospital to tell them about his finding, but of course, nobody believed him. 
You see, back in those days, everyone believed it was impossible for anything to grow in the stomach. Your stomach, as you may know, is full of hydrochloric acid and is super acidic. It needs to be that way to digest all the tough fibers in the food that we eat, but the harsh environment of the stomach was thought to be totally sterile since it was assumed that the acid would kill anything that made it to the stomach. So when Warren showed his slides to the other doctors at the hospital, they were skeptical. Many thought Warren's samples had become contaminated with the bacteria after the tissue was collected from the patient. But over the next two years, Warren continued to find the bacteria in gastric biopsies, and he also realized the bacteria were associated with chronic gastritis. However, as a pathologist, Warren wasn't a clinician, so he didn't actually get to work with the patients whose tissues he was studying. This was when Barry Marshall entered the picture. In 1981, Marshall arrived at the hospital and set up a collaboration with Warren to study patients who had the bacteria. Marshall was able to provide improved biopsies, clinical histories, and endoscopy data in sick patients with the infection. However, people were still skeptical, as many still believed bacteria couldn't possibly grow in the stomach. Even those who did accept that maybe these bacteria were in the stomach, that didn't mean they caused gastritis or stomach ulcers. So if Marshall and Warren were to show conclusively that these new bacteria cause disease, they would have to follow Koch's postulates. Koch's postulates are a series of criteria that conclusively prove a bacterium can cause disease. The postulates were developed by Robert Koch in 1882, a century before Warren discovered Helicobacter pylori. Koch followed his postulates in the 1800s to prove that a particular bacterium called mycobacterium was the causative agent of the disease tuberculosis, and Koch was awarded the 1905 Nobel Prize for his discovery. Although there are notable exceptions to the postulates, and they have been modified since Koch's day, the postulates have stood the test of time to remain the gold standard in pathogenic microbiology for proving a particular microbe causes disease. So here are the postulates in order. Number one, the microorganism suspected of causing the disease must be present in diseased tissue but absent from healthy tissue. Number two, the microbe must be isolated from the diseased tissue and maintained in pure culture separate from the other microbes. Number three, inoculation of the cultured microbe into a susceptible host must reproduce the original symptoms of the disease. And finally, number four, the same microbe must be isolated again from the inoculated diseased host. So if Marshall and Warren were to convince anyone that Helicobacter pylori causes gastritis and stomach ulcers, they would have to prove each of these four criteria. They published a paper in the journal The Lancet in 1984 that dealt with the first two postulates. They reported a close association between Helicobacter pylori and gastritis. Looking under the microscope, 
they found the bacteria in 87% of ulcer patients. That's not all the time, but it's high enough to suggest an association between the bacteria and the ulcers. Additionally, they found a strong association between the bacteria and gastritis. 38 out of 40 patients they looked at with gastritis had the bacteria. Only 2 out of 31 patients without gastritis had the bacteria. So again, this sets up a strong correlation between gastritis and the presence of the bacteria. And this fulfilled Koch's first postulate. To fulfill the second postulate, Marshall and Warren had to grow the bacteria in pure culture on a cell culture plate. This is easier said than done, because microorganisms require the right nutrients, temperature, and atmospheric conditions to grow well. Marshall and Warren tried to culture the bacteria from the biopsies they got from the patients. They added the bacteria to a plate and then let the bacteria grow in an incubator for two days. Unfortunately, they didn't see any bacteria growing on the plate. And they kept trying, but without success, until something rather serendipitous happened. Maybe some of you are already familiar with this word serendipity, but it's one of my favorite words. And serendipity plays a role in a surprising number of great scientific discoveries. So let's define it. Serendipity was originally coined by Horace Wapple in the 1750s, and he defined it as, quote, accidental sagacity, unquote, which is just an awesome phrase. <laughs> sagacity means wise. Think of the word sage and of a wise old sage up in the mountains somewhere. So serendipity means accidental wisdom. A serendipitous event occurs when something unexpected or accidental happens, but someone with the right knowledge or information is there to observe it, make sense of it, and gain wisdom from it. So in Marshall and Warren's case, they had been checking their plates for the bacteria after two days, then throwing the plates away after no bacteria were observed. Then one day, serendipitously, they left their plates in the incubator, but they didn't check the plates for six days this time because of the Easter holiday. When they came back to the lab after the holiday, they saw the bacteria growing on the plate. I like this part of the story. Sometimes, as scientists, we like to tell ourselves that the reason we aren't making enough progress in our experiments is because, well, we just aren't working hard enough. But in this case, and some other times as well, we end up getting further along by deciding to take a break every now and then. <laughs> we now know that this slow growth of H. pylori that Warren and Marshall observed is because H. pylori belongs to a group of bacteria called microaerophiles. Microaerophiles are bacteria that need oxygen to grow, but normal atmospheric levels of oxygen are toxic to them. These bacteria grow best at low oxygen conditions, less than what Marshall and Warren were using in their original experiments. But once Marshall and Warren figured out the longer incubation time, they could successfully grow up the bacteria in the lab fulfilling Koch's second postulate. This was as far as the pair had gotten when they published their 1984 paper. Many people after reading the paper were still skeptical. After all, the pair had only shown a correlation between H. pylori and gastritis, and as we're fond of saying in science, 
correlation does not equal causation. Many people flat out refuse to accept the results. Marshall, reflecting on the reaction the paper received, wrote the following, quote, 1984 was a difficult year. I was met with constant criticism that my conclusions were premature and not well supported. When the work was presented, my results were disputed and disbelieved, not on the basis of science, but because they simply could not be true. I was told the bacteria were either contaminants or harmless commensals." Unquote. So frustrated with the lack of support the discovery was receiving, Marshall set out to fulfill Koch's third and fourth postulates for H. pylori, which would conclusively prove that the bacteria caused gastritis and ulcers. To fulfill the third postulate, a susceptible host would need to be inoculated with H. pylori, and then that infected host would have to develop gastritis. The way this is usually demonstrated is with an animal model of the disease. In science, it's very common to use animal models to study diseases, but this is where Marshall and Warren hit another snag. They couldn't find a susceptible host for the bacteria. This is not unusual in pathogenic microbiology. Many pathogens only cause disease in a few species. HIV, for example, only causes AIDS in humans. But if Marshall and Warren wanted to fulfill Koch's third postulate, they would need to find a susceptible host. They tried infecting rats, but got nothing. They tried infecting pigs, still nothing. Frustrated with the lack of progress finding an animal model, Marshall decided to take matters into his own hands, or more specifically, into his own gut. This is the most famous part of the story. Marshall, fully aware that it could very well make him sick, took a solution containing 1 billion H. pylori cells, and he drank it. And five days later, he developed gastritis and was waking up at 5 a.m. to go throw up in the toilet. <laughs> Talk about risking it for the biscuit, right? But he proved his point and fulfilled Koch's third postulate. Warren checked the biopsies from Marshall's stomach and confirmed Marshall had developed gastritis and the bacteria were present, thus fulfilling Koch's fourth postulate. Marshall, at his wife's insistence, began taking antibiotics, which subsequently cleared the bacteria from his stomach and ended his gastritis. The results were published in 1985, and now the scientific community began to pay attention. There was some talk about objectivity in the experiment. Could the scientific community really trust Marshall to be objective in reporting his self-experimentation results? Well, two other lines of evidence were also working to convince people. One was that another scientist was inspired by Marshall's self-experimentation to try the same thing, and that guy got sick as well. Nobody else felt the need to risk it after that second guy. <laughs> the second thing was the success Marshall and others were having giving antibiotics to treat ulcer patients. Identifying H. pylori as a cause of stomach ulcers gave us a target to treat and cure people suffering from the ulcers. The results were amazing, as people who had suffered for years with stomach pain were finally cured, and hospitalization rates from peptic ulcer disease dropped steadily. As the benefits of the discovery became apparent, the Nobel Assembly took notice, and in 2005, 
Marshall and Warren were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. So where are we at nowadays with our understanding of H. pylori and peptic ulcer disease? Well, from a scientific standpoint, one of the nagging questions that came from the discovery of H. pylori was how could this bacteria survive so well in the harsh, acidic conditions of the stomach? Study of the bacteria led to the discovery that H. pylori has a gene that codes for an enzyme called urease. Urease enzyme cleaves urea that the bacteria takes up from the stomach and converts that urea to ammonia. Ammonia is a very basic chemical and it neutralizes the acid from the stomach, which allows the bacteria to survive and colonize the gut. Pretty cool, right? This bacteria is really smart and has been really successful. Once people started checking for H. pylori infections, it turns out 80% of people in developing countries and 30-40% to 40 of people in developed countries are infected with the bacteria. And once you're infected, you're infected for life unless you take antibiotics to clear the infection. Now, another interesting fact that emerged was although a large fraction of the world's population is infected with H. pylori, only about 10-15% to 15 of people positive for H. pylori develop ulcers. So the question that arose from Warren and Marshall's discovery was, why isn't everyone with H. pylori infections walking around with ulcers? The answer to this question was well-worded in a recent article in Clinical Microbiology Reviews. Here's the quote. Colonization with H. pylori is not a disease in itself, but a condition that affects the relative risk of developing various clinical disorders of the upper gastrointestinal tract. Unquote. So the infection is one factor among many other factors that come together to determine whether a person develops ulcers or not. So what are some of those other factors? Well, they can be things like diet, or genetic factors of the host. So the bottom line is that disease outcome is more complicated than simply the presence or absence of a pathogen. Environmental factors, host factors, and virulence factors all contribute to the development of disease. This distinction between the infection and the disease is important because many diseases that at the clinical level look the same can have very different causes. This is true for peptic ulcer disease. While about 90% of people with peptic ulcers have H. pylori infections, 10% don't. And we now know that peptic ulcers can be caused by alcohol or drug abuse and also by certain autoimmune diseases. This means that if a patient goes to a doctor and has gastritis and the doctor suspects stomach ulcers, it's not a good idea to give antibiotics right away. While there's a good chance the person has H. pylori infection, their symptoms may be caused by something else. So it's a good idea to check if the person with gastritis does indeed have an H. pylori infection. So that leads to the question, well, how do we diagnose an H. pylori infection? Fortunately, it's pretty easy. All you need is a stool sample for a PCR test. Once the positive PCR test result comes back, the patient can then be given antibiotics. A common treatment of the antibiotics 
amoxicillin and clarithromycin clear H. pylori infections in about 7 to 10 days. Unfortunately, drug-resistant strains of the bacteria have been found, particularly resistance to clarithromycin. However, there are tests that can be run to detect antibiotic-resistant strains, so doctors can prescribe the most effective antibiotic treatments. The emergence of antibiotic resistance is a growing problem, but scientists are working hard to develop new ways to combat H. pylori infections. So that concludes this fifth episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on December 18th, 2020. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. Next time on Notable Nobels, the prize we will be discussing is known as one of the biggest blunders ever made by the Karolinska Institute. (laughs) What was that prize and why should it not have been awarded? Well, listen next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. See you then.